I want to read from Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see what the apostles and elders thought about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and that news made all the Christians there glad. That's the start of this chapter that um, we're going to learn something from this morning. Just to um, put it, well, let me, let me share this with you. I, I, I do very little marital counseling, okay? Um, and that's, that's mainly because I, I don't really know much about it. Um, also because I don't like it. And uh, so I, uh, I, have, I have advice for those of you who are going to get married. Find someone who's got a really good marriage and follow them around and do what they do. There. And um, other than that, marriage should last uh, for a lifetime. And you need to learn to apologize a lot and be very, very happy and trust in God. Get closer to God. You get closer to each other. There. Okay. That's all the marital counseling I have to give. So don't come to me uh, any other time. The, um, but one of the things I do ask, especially for a couple that's just gotten together and, uh, and they want to tell me about their story, and I do this if I, if I do a wedding, I say, I want you to tell me about your first argument. Now, yeah, yeah, mainly because it's more interesting than how they got together and fell in love. But uh, the, uh, the argument's always very interesting. And uh, there's a reason, there is a reason. The reason is... Because you can learn a lot about the strength of the relationship based on how a couple has endured and gotten through that argument. How did they deal with it? And one of the most disappointing answers that I get is, oh, we've never had an argument and we just, we just don't argue. Boring and naive. And so the... Uh, you know, I want to see something. It's like, did you did you even argue about what to order for pizza? Because, you know, something, uh, just anything. Because you can tell a lot about the strength of a relationship based on how they've handled a disagreement. Now, one of the reasons why we're reluctant to admit that is because we believe that the absence of quarreling is the sign of a healthy marriage. And I'm here to tell you it's not. The absolute absence of quarreling. Now, you can have too much quarreling and probably too little. But the absence of quarreling is not in and of itself the sign of a healthy marriage. More importantly is how disagreements and quarrels are dealt with. And do, does the couple become stronger? That reveals much that is good. Now, let's move from marriage to the church. Because I think there's the same assumption in the church that we must have an absolute absence of quarreling. This assumption can lead to anxiety. Because if people even suspect 
that there's an argument or quarreling. They become very anxious and think that there's something wrong. The very fact that I'm talking about quarreling and that the word quarrel is right up there is probably making some of you anxious and nervous right now. Maybe. It's, it's our tendency. And the avoidance of arguing, the avoidance of disagreement can be so strong that we may suppress our true feelings about something. We may avoid doing something good that God wants us to do because we're concerned about the potential of upsetting others. That's phantom worrying. We're worrying about things that may not ever happen. Worse still, gossip and murmuring may take the place of real open debate and disagreement because we feel like it's somehow inappropriate to have any kind of quarrels. But I want you to know this. And this is what we learn from Acts. This is what we learn from Luke's writings. The church is not a lifeless organization. And the Bible is not a policy manual that is given to us to be interpreted strictly as if it's dead ink on dead paper. No, what you see in Acts is that the church is a living, breathing organism. It is a whole with many parts. It's described as the body of Christ. The church should be alive. And just as friends and couples, a husband and wife, can have quarrels and come out of it stronger, then the church, if the church has a good argument, meaning that it's an argument for something good, and it's done in a good way, they can come through it stronger. Especially if everyone involved discovers God's will along the way. The church is a physical group of real people with spiritual gifts who exist in a spiritual connection with God and Christ and one another. Now, what that means is that the church has resources. There we go. The church has unique resources that no other group has. Sometimes we try to equate the church with other organizations and other groups, and I will tell you, every time we do that, we fail. The church is more than any other, it's more than something like a business or like a family or, 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 or like a, a non-profit. It's much more. The church has unique resources that God has given it that no other group has because we believe that God's Spirit lives within the body of Christ. We believe that God's Spirit is active within the church. And so Jesus taught us in Matthew 18, and this is probably a lesson for another time. I am constantly amazed at how the church fails to recognize the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18, where He makes it so clear that agreements and disagreements and disputes, controversies, problems, sin among brothers and sisters ought to be dealt with in a particular way. And and let let me tell you why it would be important for us to really take Matthew 18 and the teaching of Christ seriously because He promises in that Scripture that if two or three of you will come together and agree on something, I will be there with you. In other words, He has promised to be with us in that process of dealing with quarrels and controversies. In Acts 15, you see Christ through the Holy Spirit fulfill that promise. And you see in Acts 15... That even though there's sharp dispute and disagreement between followers of Christ in Antioch, and they take it to Jerusalem to discuss it, 
It's really not that one side wins and one side is right and the other side is right, but really all of them together, they have a good argument and they come to a good decision because they realize what the Holy Spirit is doing. And if the Holy Spirit decides, then everybody can get in step with the Holy Spirit. The absence of quarreling is not the sign of a healthy church. More importantly, a more important sign of the spiritual health of a church is how do churches manage disagreements and how do they get through it? It'll help us to understand a little bit about the Antioch controversy. And what Luke has already told us is that here in Jerusalem is where Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then in Judea and Samaria, which takes you up here in this region. It's spreading out. And then to the ends of the earth. And by the time you get up here to Antioch, you're in non-Jewish territory. Okay? They've crossed the state line right here. It's kind of like going from Oklahoma to Texas. Things just change. For the Texans in the audience. It's kind of like going from Texas to Oklahoma. Things just change. Okay, there you go. Um, So... It's very different in Antioch. But we're told that they're first called Christians in Antioch. That's not because they had a PR advertising session and say, we really kind of come up with a clever name. They're called Christians because they can't call them Jews anymore. It was the Jews who accepted Jesus as, some of the Jews at least, who accepted Jesus as the Savior, and they were just seen as Jews who follow a Messiah called Jesus. But when you have Gentiles who start following Christ, you can't call them Jews, so you have to call them followers of Christ. Or you call them little, little Christs. You know, they're, they're little followers of Christ. They're, they're, like, they're like imitations of Christ. And that's where you get the word Christian. Well, what happens to the, to the Jewishness of all of that? There were people in Judea who firmly believed that there were people who, that those, those Gentiles who became followers of Christ needed to accept the covenants of Abraham and Moses. And so they were going there to teach them. Their intentions were good. They were convinced, look, we need to tell you about all of this. Okay. Well, tell us more about this covenant of Abraham and Moses. What all is involved? Well, you, 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 you can't eat certain foods and, and, and then there's circumcision, which made some of them think, wait a second. You know, what is going on here? And honestly, you know, for people who do not have that background and tradition, there's probably some concern that they're not going to be able to understand it or to incorporate it because it's not their way of life. It's not where they come from. They were taught different ways. Now, they want to follow Christ, but they don't know that they can pick up all of this other stuff and learn it, too. Not when others have had generations to learn it. This is what causes Paul and Barnabas, as Luke says, to come into sharp dispute with them and to say, that's not required. Now, Paul and Barnabas have experienced the conversion of Gentiles. Travis told you that story last week if you were here. They go to places where things are really different. But the Holy Spirit is there. And people follow Christ. So what are you going to do with these two groups who both have a point to make? They both have, they both have good intentions. Well, they take it to the apostles to let them make some kind of decision. But 
keep in mind, in doing this, they don't just check out and leave it. They don't just leave the bag at the apostles' doorstep and say, you figure this out and get back to us. They go and they participate in the process. Because all parties believe that God has something to teach everyone. All parties seem to believe that there's some wisdom, that there are prophets and teachers in Jerusalem, that there are people who know the intention of God and the teaching of Christ, and they believe that the Holy Spirit can bring them all through it. Well, we pick up on the reading in, uh, in verse 4. When Paul and Barnabas and the others come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Now that statement right there tells you that what they are doing is they're trying to figure out what God is up to. They've taken what could become a controversy and turn it into party A versus party B, and they've already decided, look, let's take a step back, let's hear from everyone, and let's find out what God is doing. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, I know that we've read the Gospels and the Pharisees often turn out to be the villains in the black hats. But you need to understand that these are Pharisees who follow Jesus Christ. They have good intentions for saying this. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. Now the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. James says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Luke shows us that there's a solution that comes out of Jerusalem, and it involves three things. It's the process that I want us to see here. I think it's the process that Luke... You know, Luke's bringing out a lot of things. He's showing us the process. He's also showing us the wisdom. But you, did you notice that there are three things that come together? And there's agreement. 
They move towards agreement, just like Christ said they could if they will come together. First of all, you have Peter who has vision. Now, now Peter had a vision in Acts 10. He had a vision of God bringing down all these clean and unclean animals. And he told him, he said, Peter, get up, kill and eat. You can, any of the animals are fine. And Peter fusses with God a little bit. He says, well, no, Lord, I don't eat unclean animals. I keep the covenants. And God says, but I'm telling you, you can eat whatever you want. I appreciate that, Lord, but... You know, it's like Peter saying, I'm more righteous than you, okay? And uh, Peter gets out of that vision this principle. God has showed me not to call unclean anything that he created. Peter gets it. He gets the insight from the vision, from the revelation. Now, later on, Peter will go to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile, and God has made this appointment between Peter and Cornelius, and they come together, and Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit, not because Peter says it's okay, not because Peter affirms it or authorizes it, but because God does. And so Peter and his, his traveling companions say, well, God's given them the Holy Spirit. Who can disagree with accepting them into fellowship? The next thing that happens here in this little Jerusalem solution is Paul and Barnabas. They tell of their experiences how they went to the island of Cyprus, and then they went out to Iconium and Lystra and Derby, And they saw Gentiles. They've been worshiping with Gentiles. They saw Gentiles come to faith, and they experienced life among them. They are among the prophets and teachers in Antioch, where there are Gentiles following Christ. Now, Paul and Barnabas are Jews who follow Jesus. And they now see that other nations can do the same thing. Paul and Barnabas have real experience. They have seen signs and wonders. They've seen the work in God. But they also have that on-the-ground experience. They know what it's like. They've, they even told the Samaritans about it. When they were on that trip down to Jerusalem, they tell the, the Phoenicians who follow Christ and the Samaritans who follow Christ. They say, God is bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom. And the result is people say, that's great! God's finally fulfilling His plans to save all of the world. There's no question about it in Phoenicia and Samaria. They know that God approves of it. And they know the reason why they come into sharp disagreement with the brothers from Judea is because they have seen themselves that God does not put any prerequisites on following Christ. That salvation comes through Christ. That's it. Underline it. The other stuff is fine. The other stuff is good. And nobody's telling the Jewish believers that they can't do that. God's not canceling all that out and saying, well, it was all a big mistake. As much as God is saying, look, we don't intend for these Gentiles to come through Judaism to get to Christ, but they come to Christ. That was the teaching of Jesus. That's the action of God. Peter saw it. Paul and Barnabas see it. You have vision and you have experience. Now let me say something about this, this vision that Peter has. It might be that we think, well, wait, that's a miraculous vision. That's miraculous revelation. I mean, that sort of stuff doesn't happen in the church anymore, does it? Well, I don't know. I'm not saying it can't because God can do whatever He wants. But I want you to understand this because there's something that Luke teaches us here. Peter is required to understand what he has seen. He has to interpret it. And, and, and when you read the narrative of Peter going to Cornelius' house, 
I'm not sure that Peter fully understands what that whole, you know, animal parade was with all of the, uh, uh, the clean and unclean animals. I'm not sure that he understands what all of that means until after his encounter with Cornelius. I mean, he's still putting it together. And we talk about vision in the church, and we often mean by it people who have insight. People who have wisdom. And you know, it can be anybody. Have you ever met with somebody or talked to somebody, and they just have that, that, that moment of brilliance where they, they see things very clearly? They may do that all the time, or they may just do that one time. But whatever it is, we always say, that's... That's a wonderful insight that comes from God. We've had people share their experiences, and we realize that God gave them great insight. Now, here's, here's, here's the, the challenge. I think that our concerns sometimes, and I'm going to admit this, that this is one of my concerns, and by the way, we'll get into this more next week, but one of my concerns is, is that when people have these miraculous visions, that that becomes kind of the trump card. I had a dream of Jesus, and he was 900 foot tall, and he said this to me. And let me tell you, well, okay, that trumps everything. You had the big dream, so none of us can say anything. I get really nervous when that becomes the trump card. Did you notice here in Jerusalem that even though Peter says that, that's not the end of the discussion. Thank you, Peter. We're going to calculate that into our decision. Thank you, Peter. We understand that. It means something. They don't ignore it. It means something. But that vision alone is not everything that's required. Otherwise, people could just claim to have visions and that would end all discussion. When vision becomes the sort of thing, or when when special revelation becomes the sort of thing that puts somebody up on a pedestal and gives them particular power to do more, that's wrong. But if that insight enlightens everybody else as to what God is doing, then I think it has to be considered, I think it has to be listened to. And by the way, notice that Peter in this vision, and if they had heard the whole story the way Luke records it, Peter doesn't come off as somebody to be put on a pedestal. He comes off as somebody who has to kind of be gigged a little bit and jabbed in the side. Come on, Peter. What's it going to take? What's it going to take to get you down to Cornelius' house? Peter doesn't come off admirable necessarily in that vision at all. And in some ways that authenticates it, doesn't it? Because Peter's not pointing to himself, he's pointing to what God is doing. Now James brings out Scripture. This is James, he's known as James the Just. This James may very well be the brother of Jesus Christ. A son of Joseph and Mary, perhaps. He he is also perhaps the author of the epistle of James. But what matters here is that he's a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And his experience is very different from Paul and Barnabas and Peter. He worships mostly with Jews. He he worships with Jews who follow the Messiah. But James brings a third perspective into all of this. Scripture. He quotes from Amos 9. He quotes from Isaiah 45. These Scriptures give credibility to Peter's vision. And James puts it all together and he says, Peter's vision has been tested and it fits with what God says in Scripture. In other words, Peter's got the same perspective that the prophets of old had. And all of this is working together, this triangle of experience and vision and Scripture. And so it all comes together. And James says, God has been telling this all along. I mean, Peter had the vision. 
if he had seen it in Scripture, he would have seen what God was doing. But it's good that we've got both of those. Paul and Barnabas are living the experience, but you see it in Scripture. God's intended this all along, and now here we are in Jerusalem figuring this out. God is a few steps out there in front of them, just as it should be. And all of these apostles and elders and teachers come together in Jerusalem, not to get together to make some huge church edict, but to get together to say, what exactly is God doing? Because He's doing some new things. And James says, He is. But from long ago, He told us this is what He was going to do. And so they become what Jesus describes in the Gospel of Matthew. They become those scribes, scribes of the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, the scribe who's prepared for the kingdom brings out of the storehouse treasures old and treasures new. And through this three-part process, they see both the old ways of God and the new ways of God, and it's all in sync. And they realize what God is doing, and they arrive at a solution. A solution that actually does turn into a letter. Now this isn't an edict from the church in Jerusalem. It's a message of encouragement. And they send this message of encouragement out with other messengers to encourage one another. In that letter it says, and by the way, it does ask them to, to abstain from some things that they, they probably don't need to be involved in, but it also helps them to have fellowship with the Jews. And we won't go into detail on all that. But I love this statement in verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these necessary things. One English translation says, the Holy Spirit made a decision, and so we followed it. I like that. They just figured out what the Holy Spirit had already decided. And they knew that because of Peter's vision, the experience of Paul and Barnabas, and James's ability to read Scripture. The Holy Spirit decided. Now, isn't it obvious how we can learn from this? There are churches on occasion that might flee from the quarrel. They might submerge in their differences and build camps. They might have people that would storm off angry and upset. But the apostles demonstrate a better way. They show that the, they believe that God has given them resources not to hide from the controversy or the question, but to go ahead and confront it because they have the faith that they're not going to be destroyed by it. I guess Luke could have given us some stories about churches that were weak and messed up and avoided the whole thing. But why? Because those stories wouldn't encourage anybody at all. Now, before we completely co conclude and, and close the book on Acts 15, did you notice that there's one more controversy? It's interesting that right after this great moment where they all came to agreement, the decision seemed good to the Holy Spirit. It seems good to everybody. That means that even those Pharisees that were in the crowd, they said, this makes sense. This makes complete sense. And yet there's one more quarrel. Why would Luke put that in there? Because there's more to the story. Something else we need to learn. One more thing we need to learn that's very important. I want to pick up the reading at verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. That's good. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. 
But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia or Polynesia or wherever it is and had not continued with them in the work. Now, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Did you notice there? The word is the same. A sharp disagreement. Just like they had in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas also have this sharp disagreement and they parted company. Now, we need to stop for a second because we get past that too quickly. This is a, this is a heartbreaking breakup. Barnabas was the first one who accepted Paul, known as Saul in those days, who had been a persecutor of Christians. At his hand, brothers and sisters in Christ had been killed. And Barnabas does that risky thing and moves out there and accepts him. And now they can't work together. They had gone to Cyprus. And they had faced down wizards. And now they've broken up. They had gone out there to places that they didn't intend to go. They were going one way. They had faced all kinds of opposition and, and, and basically been thrown out of town. And they end up taking the wrong road and going up into the Gentile backwoods and they get mistaken for Greek gods. They're just kind of at their wit's end and all this. They've been through all sorts of things. And now they have to part company. They had stood together in Antioch to oppose those who were trying to add to God's process of salvation, and they even brought the Word to Jerusalem, and their experiences helped the entire church, the entire kingdom, discover what God's will was. And now these two can't even work together. That's sad. It's kind of heartbreaking. The result is that Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus... And Paul and Silas then, who's the new companion of Paul, he, he, um, he picks up here. We, he's one of those that goes from Jerusalem to encourage the church in Antioch. Paul and Silas go to Syria and Cilicia. Why does Luke have to tell us this story? Why couldn't we have just had our happy ending? Well, maybe because happy endings are much more than what we create for ourselves. Luke is saying that there is something good here. Maybe for Paul and Barnabas it doesn't work out the way we want. But God isn't... God is not interrupted in His plans because of this. God is not dismayed. God is not powerless. And He uses both of these individuals and new individuals to continue the mission work of the kingdom. In fact, there's clues to it later on in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul mentions Barnabas. Now, that most likely is a comment that comes after the dispute. It seems to show us that Barnabas is still out there doing the Lord's work. And Paul knows about it. And even seems to support it. But the one I really like is in 2 Timothy, where Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, Luke alone is here with me. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful in serving me. Now, who was right and who was wrong in the Barnabas and Paul dispute? Because you've got to know who to back, right? You've got to know. There's got to be a winner. There's got to be a loser, right? Luke doesn't tell us. Well, now it says that the church supported Paul and Silas. Okay. 
Maybe Barnabas didn't need support. Cyprus was his hometown. Paul's always got to be right. After all, he's the holy inspired apostle Paul. He can't ever be wrong, can he? Sure he can. In fact, he might have been wrong about John Mark. Either that or John Mark proves to him later on that he can trust him. There in 2 Timothy, he's telling Timothy, Mark is the most resourceful, useful companion that I know of. Then why didn't you want to take him back there in Acts 15? Here's the, here's the lesson. The church. The church is filled with people who are fallible. They make mistakes. And what we need in our church leaders, what we need in our church members, are not perfect, infallible people, but faithful people. Faithful people who will trust in God. And here's some of the lessons that we learn. We learn that sometimes we're wrong. Oh, boy, how much could we, how much, how much further could we go in the kingdom if we weren't afraid to admit that? But sometimes being wrong is like the unforgivable sin. What about those Pharisees who were up there saying, you have to accept the covenant of Moses? Guess what? They were wrong. They weren't condemned. They were just wrong. Later on, it seems like they say, hey, you know what? We were wrong. This seems good. I heard what Peter had to say. I heard what Paul and Barnabas had to say. James is making good sense. We admit it. We're wrong. Christ alone. Salvation's in Christ alone. That, that, if it seemed good to them, as Luke says, then you know what? Their faith probably grew as well. What a fantastic, wonderful thing that is. Being wrong is not the unforgivable sin. Not if we can admit it, repent, if need be. If we're striving to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, then God will show us the truth. Second thing we learn is, is that some disagreements end in separation. Some disagreements end in unity. But that doesn't mean that anybody's thrown out of the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas are still in the kingdom. They don't work together anymore. But they're still at work in the kingdom. Now, if we're going to have a good decision, then we need to learn how to have good arguments. That means arguments where we don't attack people personally, where we don't go after each other personally and call names and assume the worst. And that means that you're going to have discussions that aren't discouraging, but they're going to be ultimately be encouraging. And it means, it means this, above all. It means that everybody is dedicated to the kind of humility that we're going to seek out what God is doing above all. And we need to read Scripture with the Spirit. That's the third thing we're taught. We have a lot of sympathy for James. I know I do. Quoting Scripture to make a point. But notice that James' quotation of Scripture on its own isn't everything that's needed to get everybody to that good. James is quoting Scripture because he can see how God's Word fits in with what God is doing. James says that Peter's insight is vital to making sense of what is written in Amos and Isaiah. He says it. He says, Simon has shown us that what God said to the prophets long ago is making sense today. Here's what, here's what I think this means for us. It means that we need to read the Word of God. Oh, we need to read the Word of God. We need to read the Word of God as if it is living and if it's convicting and we dare not read the Word of God as if it's a dead, boring policy manual on how to set up a franchise of Church of Christ Incorporated. Okay? Because if we do that, we're going to take the Spirit and push it completely out of the process. But if we can embrace all of that, then guess what? 
God is going to work through all of us to accomplish His purposes. And even where there are these, there's these heart-breaking disagreements like Paul and Barnabas, God's going to overcome it. And He's going to work with everybody involved. Now, I want to say one last word. I'm fully willing to admit that this congregation has been through some painful conflicts in its history. I'm not afraid to admit that. Because what I believe is, is I believe that we serve and worship a God who's bigger than those conflicts. We serve and worship a God who has. If you'll look back with eyes of faith, you'll see that God even delivers us through those conflicts. And I believe that God has done that in the lives of people here. I think it's important to know that and to name that the way Luke does here and to tell the truth so honestly the way Luke does. Now, now here's something else I want you to know is that when those kind of moments come, and they will come, and now let me say this, I don't want you leaving here to say, hey, the fix is in, the preacher's setting us up for something. This is the text today, folks. This is Acts 15. It's here, okay? I'm just preaching it. I'm not some kind of special prophet. I just know human nature, and you know what? We're going to have disagreements. It's going to happen. So no, there's not anything particular out there. And if you think that I've got some, you know, something hidden in the back pocket here, that it's like, you're talking about this, this, and this, and this. Come to me and let's talk about your first argument because I'd really like to know about it, okay? And Because uh, you might enlighten me. But no, I don't want you to think that. I don't want you to focus on us and focus on worry and focus on anxiety. I want you to focus on God. I want you to focus on His Holy Spirit and what He can do. As we often say, He's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. Now, I'm sorry I have to take the extra time to say that, but I don't want this to become a discouragement to any of you. I want it to become an encouragement that just like Paul and Barnabas, just like the, the believers in Jerusalem and in Antioch and in Phoenicia and in Samaria, we can be encouraged. Let's all be humble as we seek the decision that the Holy Spirit is making. Because long before we've decided anything, the Holy Spirit has decided. And those decisions that we make are simply those to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to do its work. And I think there are ways that Christ can be among us and all of these things can seem good to all of us, I'm sure. As we stand and sing this song, we, we want to we affirm some of this and we want to affirm also that, that God is able to do immeasurably more than what we can ask or imagine. And right now, if there's any worry, if there's any concern, if there's any fear that somehow you're outside of God's salvation, hear the message of Acts, that it's in Jesus Christ that there is salvation. And, and hear the message of Acts. Hear the message of Luke. That the Holy Spirit can live within the church and it can vitalize the church. And so if there's anything at all, if there's any... If there are any relationships that need repairing, then I encourage you today to mend those relationships, to strengthen those relationships in the Lord. We have elders who will stand up here and who will go to room 100, and they'll be here to pray for you. All you have to do is come to them and say, I just need some prayer. And that's it. Let's stand. Let's sing and encourage one another.